Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Mafedon. Thanks for tuning in. This weekend, Boston was alive with a series of cultural events highlighting the diverse populations of our city. One. Now turn. Let's go. And basic. One. An explosion of feet guided by rhythm, patience, and a touch of flair. And just like that, Boston City Hall Plaza transformed into a salsa dance party. Newcomers and pros alike shook it up to the beats and instruction of DJ Big O and Salsa E Control for the first night of Boston's summer dance series. With three more evenings on the way, featuring kazomba, R&B, and house music, the Office of Tourism, Sports, and Entertainment is serving culture to the people. The universal languages of music and dance were on full display, bringing movers of all backgrounds together in an evening of fun. I found the salsa community and I, I just felt accepted immediately. And it's just like nice to dance with like different cultures and like people and like talk to people about like where they're from and what their like perceptions are. And it's just a world, um, I don't know, it's just a connecting dance that I think everybody should explore. Uh, the value that we see in um, you know, learning and knowing about other people's culture is that we tend to learn that we're one of the same, you know, we're, we're actually not that different. Uh, we may not speak the same language, but through dance we can actually communicate with each other. It is a beautiful um, experience to be able to move and to share my culture and to share the, the beautiful summer night with, with other people too that appreciate and enjoy movement and dance and culture. I think that all the cultures have their tradition especially in music and food. Uh, so the more that we familiarize with each other's culture, the more we can get to know each other, the more we can appreciate each other and find, and find uh, commonality. Summer Dance Series Night is August 19th from 5 to 8 p.m. For the complete schedule, you can visit boston.gov forward slash visiting dash Boston. This is Faith and Macedon with BNN News, and I'm here on this lovely Saturday at Mary Hannon Playground. After two years, the Dudley Jazz Fest is back. We are here witnessing the one and only Fred Woodard Collective taking the stage. Fred Woodard Jr. started Dudley Jazz Fest in 2016 with a simple goal, to keep jazz music alive. Yet it was clear that the music was not just for the captivated crowd, but also for the local jazz musicians who shared the stage with Woodard. In order for jazz musicians to thrive, they have to perform. It's one, they have to study, of course, before, you know, to know what they're doing and develop their skills and everything. But there's a certain uh, thing that you can learn, certain things you can learn from performing, actually doing it, that you can't learn in the practice room or in the classroom. So it's important that jazz musicians, even veterans, continue to play on a regular basis to develop their art. Jazz has deep roots in the African-American community. This music, um, Definitely is uplifting. Um, it has a lot of elements that touch the spirit. Um, it, you know, jazz, you're talking about jazz, you know, you have some elements like uh, some blues. You hear blues in the music. Uh, definitely just some spirituals. Um, it gets real deep. The festival has become a tradition in the community, and it's a family affair which has brought Fred Jr. and his children closer a love of music connecting each generation. I always liked music, but my father in particular had 
a, a pretty substantial jazz collection. So I grew up listening to jazz music, along with rhythm and blues and everything else. I think that's really like a special experience that I have. You know, not many people come from like all musical families. So like when you have that, it's like, it's like really something special, you know, like you get to hone your talents with people that you've known your whole life. So I think that's great. It's our music. It's black music, so it should be kept alive forever. It should, the tradition should be passed down and passed down. And these artists who created these amazing albums should never be forgotten or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. After two years inside, an afternoon enjoying music at the renovated Mary Hannon playground was healing. COVID's confined us for the past few years, and it takes away the fear. Once you're out, you realize you don't have to be in fear, but the music brings you, it draws you, then the familiarity of the songs and the musicians. It's just a nice place to be. I hope that they get to see um, some local artists shine and like have a new appreciation for jazz. Like We have some younger people here performing, so Hopefully seeing that will open up younger people's minds to, you know, different types of music. Puerto Ricans make up 28% of the Latinos in Boston. Therefore, it should be no surprise that the Puerto Rican parade was overflowing with joy, fun, and rich heritage. As the first openly gay commissioner of veteran services, Robert Santiago, Grand Marshal of Sunday's Puerto Rican parade, understands the importance of being seen. Having pride in one's culture is everything. We can't forget who we are or where we came from. Rather it's Puerto Rico, rather it's the Dominican Republic, rather it's Ireland, you know. This is who we are, this is our identity. If we lose our identity, we lose everything. The parade was the fitting culmination of the three-day Puerto Rican festival, now in its 55th year. Massachusetts boasts the fourth biggest Puerto Rican festival in the country and is home to the largest Latino group in the city. The energy was high as Puerto Rican revelers embraced the moment. I've been coming to the festival for many, many years and I'm just embracing the moment. It's beautiful to see the kids, to see their families, to see people just feeling proud and celebrating Puerto Rican cultural in Boston. Participants rose early to showcase the best of Puerto Rican culture. Watchers lined Columbus Ave and Seaver Streets for a good view of dancing, floats, and stunning car show, which made their final stop at Franklin Playstead. At the heart of the Puerto Rican festival was the diversity and uplifting of this community. It's really important that we are always showing that we're supporting these festivals because um, they celebrate the diversity of this city. You know, Boston is a city that is majority people of color, and oftentimes because of our living patterns, people don't see that, or when tourists come here, they don't see that. It's good to show the world and to show the country and to show the Commonwealth that we celebrate the diversity of who we are. People love coming to Boston to celebrate um, our diversity, to celebrate the Puerto Rican community and other, um, and other groups as well. Boston's a city that welcomes different groups. We celebrate our immigrants, our diversity, but Boston's a welcoming city and we're learning from each other every day and when we learn from each other it makes us stronger and more welcoming. A lovely sight to see for people of all ages, especially families. I'm excited to see all the people on in the cars and all the floats. This is a great day so far to be able to celebrate my heritage and to expose my children to this culture. So I'm really having a great time being able to connect with the community. I'm just, it's just a blast. 
It was a great day of culture and pride at the Puerto Rican Festival Parade. This is Faith Amalfitan with CNN News. Providing hope and a reason to smile is an extraordinary gift in the face of life's greatest challenges. Last Thursday, the Joe Andrusi Foundation did just that in its 11th annual Codzilla Upbeat patient outing. In partnership with Boston Harbor City Cruises, the foundation took more than 100 cancer patients and their families for a ride on Boston's Codzilla speedboat. The day was a chance for families to embrace positivity and respite from the stress of dealing with cancer diagnosis. Families and patients were also treated to a catered Panera lunch and tickets to the New England Aquarium. Chief Engagement Officer Joe Andrusi founded the organization in 2008 when his career as a New England Patriots offensive guard ended suddenly after he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's Burkitt's lymphoma in 2007. Now cancer-free, Joe and his wife, Jen, have committed themselves to alleviating the financial stress and pain a cancer diagnosis can wreak and the lives of patients and families. In 2020, over $848,000 was distributed in direct assistance to help 3,174 individuals with housing, transportation, utilities, food, and insurance. To learn more about the Andrusi Foundation, you can visit www.joeandruzzifoundation.org. As executive director at the Midas Collaborative, Molly Goodman has dedicated her career to supporting affordable housing and home ownership for low and moderate income residents of Massachusetts. Serving as the manager of counseling and home ownership for Alston Brighton Community Development Corporation, as a graduate fellow with the Brookline Housing Authority, and as a founding board member and clerk of Abundant Housing of Massachusetts. Recently, I spoke with Molly about the financial literacy education, Midas collaborative offers and their upcoming match gala in October. Here's the interview. Hi Molly, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And to get us started, can you share what is the Midas Collaborative and what's its mission? So the Midas Collaborative is a membership organization in Massachusetts. We're made up of lots of different nonprofits across the state. Our mission um, is to advance the financial security of low and moderate income residents across Massachusetts in collaboration with our members, organizations, and partners. Um, Midas provides tools, services, and training to assist organizations and public officials to create more prosperous communities. Excellent. And what has been one of the most rewarding things of the work that you do as executive director there? So part of what Midas does, we have three peers, uh, three stools, three legs of the stools, um, and we administer match savings programs. We do advocacy on behalf of consumers uh, and low and moderate income consumers in particular, um, and we provide training and services to our member organizations in financial education. I have to say that the, ad the administration of the match savings programs is my favorite part. Um, because we are giving people money, incentivizing them to save, and then providing some ratio of match, sometimes up to three to one. Um, and so it's been incredibly rewarding to help people um, make these asset purchases and start building wealth and getting the process started is incredibly rewarding. And then having those successes is even more rewarding. 
Oh, three to one ratio. That's an insane matching uh, ratio. Uh, so what type of assets have uh, participants who have uh, been part of the matching savings program been able to purchase with your help? So home ownership is the biggest goal. Um, starting a business and post-secondary education are also um, prominent savings goals. Over the last year, we actually lost federal funding in the last decade. And something that, you know, silver lining is that we actually started opening up the savings categories to greater um, numbers and varieties of savings eligible goals. And that has opened it up to things like appliances for rental units, um, vehicles, paying down debt. Um, we're hoping to add some more programs around paying off student debt. Um, these are the things that stand in the way of asset purchases, and they prevent people from acquiring assets and starting to build wealth. Excellent. And speaking of assets, why, why are they so important to have? That's a good question. Um, the most um, important or the most essential way of building wealth and increasing your net worth um, which increases your financial stability, your, your ability to weather shocks and financial crises is your, um, your, your assets on hand and liquid assets in particular um, to pay off any um, emergency expenses or unexpected expenses without derailing the rest um, of your life. So uh, assets are a critical piece of that to ensure that stability and that you are continuing to generate um, wealth outside of just your, your main income source, your wages. So at Midas Collaborative, it does take a dedicated village to do all of the work that you do. Who are some of the organizations that you partner with and what does the partnership entail? Some of our Boston organizations, um, the Massachusetts Affordable Housing Alliance, MAHA, we administer a program for them called STASH. That program is for first-generation home buyers. Uh, so it has been incredibly gratifying to see all of those purchases happening in the city of Boston with first-generation home buyers. Um, another program that we run in Boston is with the break is break time. Sorry. Uh, let me take that back. Another mm -hmm. program that we run in Boston is with Break Time. Break Time works with youth currently experiencing homelessness. They provide temporary employment for um, youth 18 to 24 years old who are currently experiencing homelessness. And part of that program with the temporary employment is the ability to put away $50 a week and get $50 matching. Oh, wow. um, so when they leave the program, there's a significant chunk of money that's helping them go into this next stage and helping them either stay out or um, find permanent stable housing so that they're able to get out of homelessness. And uh, Boston has a very large immigrant uh, population and sometimes this community can feel unseen or unheard. Uh, for people who are interested, are there any programs that service uh, individuals who may not speak English? So Midas is not a direct service provider, but our organizations on the ground, our member organizations providing, you know, homeownership services, direct counseling, they often do provide services in different languages. I know for a fact, Urban Edge provides homeownership services in 
English, Spanish, and Haitian Creole. Um, there are other organizations um, across our membership portfolio that have varying uh, language accessibility. Uh, I wish that I had a more comprehensive um, website to, to point out all of those services, but it's something we'll definitely work on in the future so that there's a more clear understanding of which organizations offer services in which language. All right, and last October, uh, Midas hosted Mass Saves, the 14th Annual Financial Health and Wellness Summit. Uh, so what is next for Midas in regard to upcoming events? We are holding our first annual Match Gala this October, October 24th at Dorchester Brewing Company. Um, it is our annual fundraising event. We're very excited to be hosting it in Dorchester, right in the Boston community. And we're looking for sponsors, attendees, any businesses that are really looking to give back to closing the racial wealth divide. We would welcome your participation and your support. Fabulous. And for uh, viewers who want to learn more about Midas Collaborative or take advantage of the programs that you offer, how can they do so? You can visit our website at www.midascollab.org. Molly Goodman, Executive Director with Midas Collaborative, thank you so much for your time and best of luck at the gala. Finally, in our conversation with individuals giving back to help the residents of Boston, meet Reverend Werner K. Walker. Reverend Walker is the Program Director of Communities Responding to Extreme Weather or CREW organization. He's been with CREW for over three years now. CREW is a network of local leaders building grassroots climate resilience through inclusive and hands-on education, service, and planning. In our conversation, Reverend Walker discussed the heat preparation workshops he's been leading throughout the city and why we must take the extreme weather seriously, particularly in our communities of color. Reverend Walker, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that you are not new to BNN, but this is your first time here in our Eggleston studio, so I welcome you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here in this beautiful uh, studio and also this beautiful building. Absolutely. So, crew, uh, communities responding to extreme weather, uh, you received $50,000 in grant uh, earlier this summer from the Boston Foundation's Open Door Grants Program. Can you talk about the impact of these funds on the work that you've been able to do uh, for the organization? Yes, uh, we are so grateful to the Boston Foundation for uh, awarding us the $50,000 grant and believing in the vision of that the of crew and the vision is to prepare communities for extreme weather through education service and planning uh, so with that grant we plan on scaling up our operations and environmental justice communities uh, that's really where we focus our work on communities that are disproportionately affected by, affected by the climate crisis mm -hmm. such as dorchester mattapan roxbury uh, etc uh, and we know that this is not a new phenomenon uh, that communities of color are disproportionately impacted, particularly those that are in the city and even coastal communities are impacted uh, greatly by the climate crisis and the rising sea level. So we're so glad that the Boston Foundation uh, has believed in the work that crew has been doing since 2018 mm -hmm. of getting resources into the 
mar most marginalized communities uh, that need them, getting them into marginalized communities and getting them into uh, community members uh, that will benefit greatly from resources such as air conditioners and cooling kits when extreme heat uh, hits our community. Wonderful. And, and speaking of the work, uh, Crew was able to host several in-person and virtual workshops through the summer, um, providing information on how to stay healthy in this heat. Uh, some of the communities reached were the South End, Dorchester, Mattapan, and just this weekend you were in Brockton as well, uh, giving out uh, ACs. Can you share some tips about um, how extreme heating is impacting our health? Yes, uh, there is an intersection between public health and climate change, and we know that people that live in urban heat islands or communities that have more concrete uh, buildings and freeways than trees, uh, their, temp their temperatures can feel very oppressive. Heat can feel very oppressive. In fact, a community without trees, a 90-degree day will feel up to 110 degrees. Wow. A community with trees, such as Brookline, uh, on a 90 degree day, that could feel up to 70 degrees. So trees do make the difference and sh shaded areas do make the difference. So we've been very fortunate to partner with Mass General Hospital, the Authentic Caribbean Foundation to offer these services and offer these uh, air conditioner units and also to offer uh, best practices to stay cool workshops. So as you mentioned, we've had uh, workshops in uh, the South End, uh, Mattapan and Dorchester, mm -hmm. uh, but we and, and the, the the turnouts were robust and the crowd was very excited uh, to not only be not only potentially receive a air conditioner unit, but also to learn information about how to stay cool during a heat wave. Uh, right. So we're very fortunate to be doing this work and really uh, pitting boots on the ground in communities that are hit hardest by the climate crisis. Is the U.S. doing enough to take climate change seriously? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question, Faith. And simply put, the U.S. is not doing enough. In fact, the U.S. Uh, has, the U.S. government, the federal government, uh, the executive branch has experienced an unexpected setback by the recent Supreme Court ruling uh, with the, uh, the EPA. Uh, okay. saying that the EPA cannot regulate fossil fuel industries. Uh, we know that the climate agenda is stalling in Congress, and it looked like we're not on track to meet our Paris Accord agreement targets that we set. Uh, but with that being said, it doesn't mean that here in Massachusetts we're not doing anything, that the state legislator is not doing anything. Uh, last Thursday, Massachusetts passed a landmark climate bill. Uh, Biden is trying to use his executive power to address climate change, but he has not declared a climate emergency. We need an emergency declaration declared because climate change is the greatest existential threat to our human existence, and we are seeing these weather impacts. For the last week, there's been an oppressive heat wave in Boston. Uh, in fact, the mayor, Mayor Wu, has declared another heat emergency day today. Right. Uh, so we recognize and realize that heat waves will become more frequent and they will become longer in duration. We also recognize that sea level and flooding uh, and stormwater runoff will, be, will continue to happen uh, because Boston, believe it or not, and many people may not think, to, think of Boston this way, but it's a coastal city okay. because we're surrounded by water. And the reality of it is that because we are surrounded by water, there are communities that are at rest, risk of, being, of disappearing and dissipating. 
such as the Back Bay, for instance, or such as the Seaport District, or, or even communities uh, that are predominantly communities of color, such as Dorchester, we will see more and more frequent flooding along Gallivan Boulevard. And I think it's important for us to continue to prepare ourselves for these extreme weather events because they're coming fast and they will continually be part of not only our lives but our children's lives and our children's children's lives. Uh, but I think President Biden needs to declare of the climate emergency so he and his office can marshal all the resources necessary to ensure that we meet our goals set out by the Climate Accord Agreement. What are some of the structural inequalities that are um, making communities of color most vulnerable? And what things can our Boston leadership do to address it? Well, that's a great question that you asked. Uh, historically, communities of color, urban communities, have been disinvested. They have been redlined. Uh, and they have, across the country, across the United States, and they have been left to fend for themselves in many regards. Uh, and when we think about the climate crisis, yes, the world will be affected by climate change. The world is affected by climate change. Mm -hmm. But we know that the impacts are felt differently according to where, where an individual lives. Uh, and I ultimately think that we need the Green New Deal. And I know that Mayor Wu is here in Boston is pushing for the Green New Deal and trying to implement policies uh, that are laid out in the Green New Deal. Uh, but the reality of it is that we need to transition quickly off of fossil fuels, coal and gas, dirty energy, and invest and use more clean energy. And this will begin to stop the climate crisis from continuing to get worse. And the reality of it is that the climate crisis is not new. Climate change is not new. Climate change has been happening since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and we are just now starting to see, uh, and for the last 30 plus years, starting to see the extreme weather impacts. For instance, Hurricane Katrina that uh, devastated New Orleans in 2005. That's a prime example of climate change. Right. Uh, when we think about the, Chicago, the 1995 Chicago heat wave that killed 739 people, it was five days of temperature around about or over 100 degrees and, f and 739 people died, mostly people in communities of color. So what I think what we're doing here in Boston, we have a progressive leadership and there is this uh, plan that the mayor's office uh, has proposed and announced rather, they announced uh, in April uh, that would get the resources, the cooling centers and the splash pads open in environmental justice communities and to allow those uh, splash pads and cooling centers, etc., to be very accessible to people who live in communities who oftentimes affording an air conditioner can be burdensome. Oftentimes trying to go out and buy a new air conditioner would be too much for their budget. Wow. Uh, and that's really what's uh, the dynamic that drives our work, because we go right into the heart of the community uh, and to the communities that are disproportionately affected. Uh, and the reality of it is that uh, we are fortunate to work with a lot of 
partner organization in Dorchester, uh, partner organizations in Mattapan. So, for instance, when we uh, held our event in Dorchester, we had it at the Maserat Community Center, which is on Washington Street mm -hmm. in Dorchester. When we had uh, on July 14th, we had our uh, event in Mattapan, we had it at the Boston Nature Center. Uh, so we really believe in the value of connecting with uh, local organizations to be able to connect with community members. And really, uh, equity and justice uh, and racial justice is at the heart of our agenda. So that's why we prioritize uh, going into environmental justice communities. Uh, and for people who are interested in learning more or possibly even uh, starting a hub, uh, a crew hub in their own community, how can they get in touch? Oh, well, please feel free uh, to reach out to myself uh, at uh, vernon at climatecrew.org or to my colleague, uh, who is the coordinator for Resiliency Hubs, Colin, uh, Colin at climatecrew.org. And it's on our website. People are encouraged to visit our website, uh, climatecrew.org, and they can find a plethora of information. So a lot of uh, incredible and important work which is, is happening there. So Reverend Vernon Walker. Program Director of Crew, thank you so much for your time and being here in the studio. No, thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for tuning in. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amaphidon.